When you love someone, seeing them struggle with their mental health can be one of the hardest things in the world, especially when you know they need help but don't know where to turn. That's why 988 Lifeline is here. 988's trained crisis counselors are available 24-7 by phone or text to provide you with the resources and support you need to help the people you love. No one should have to struggle alone. Call or text 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline day or night. 988. Hope has a new number. What's up, everyone? Welcome back. Another episode of the New Evangelicals. On this episode, I have Dr. Kia Moore, who is a church planter. She is a health advocate. She is an activist. She is kicking ass and taking names. And we had a great conversation talking about all kinds of things, about vaccine hesitancy, about church planting, about misogyny um, in in both the white evangelical church and black evangelical church. Um, Her story, um, it was was great. It was awesome. Uh, She's amazing. And I hope you all enjoy this episode because she is someone that you should be following if you haven't followed already. Also wanted to say, as always, thank you to everyone who is uh, listening to the podcast, subscribing, sharing. We continue to have new people listening. So if this is your first time, thank you and welcome. If you want to support the show, you can click on the link in the show notes. It brings us to our fundraising um, website where we're tr- uh, currently trying to raise funds for an upcoming docu-series and also pay for all the overhead that goes into making the show possible. If you can't do that, we totally get it. But if you could give us at least a rating, that would be a huge huge, huge help. All right, friends, quick intro today. I want to get, I want to get into this ASAP. So here we go. Enjoy it. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by the Amaveo Group. You might be wondering, Tim, who or what is the Amaveo Group? I'm so glad you asked. The Amaveo Group is a nonprofit organization that exists to see broken systems fixed in communities all over the world, including right here in the States. And they are looking for people who want to help. This group works directly with local leaders in their own context in places like Ireland, Mexico, Philadelphia, and Haiti. Now, Let's be honest, friends, when many of us think about going to another country and raising money to go, we think about our missions trips as teens with our evangelical church so we could go and quote unquote preach the gospel, which in many cases meant proselytizing and colonizing and showing them a better and superior way of living, right? Which we do not want to do anymore. This is not what we're talking about. No proselytizing, just straight up help. This is also a way for you to get out of your own bubble and explore different parts of the world and experience the diversity of humanity while also doing good along the way. If you're interested in being a part of this, you can click on the link in our show notes or visit amaveogroup.org. That's A-M-O-V-E-O group.org. Well, Dr. Kia Moore, I think we, I think I found you maybe on Instagram and I reached out. I'm like, oh, this is a, your, your bio is very unique. It was like church planner, expert fundraiser. Also, I'm a doctor, also public health. And I'm like, I got to get Dr. Kia Moore on the podcast because you have so many qualifications. So thanks for responding and thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. 
No, thanks for having me. I, I, I figured that that's a lot for people to take in, but it's just kind of the journey that God has placed me on. <laughs> well, let's start here. Why don't you, you know, kind of give my audience your intro? Who is Dr. Kia Moore? What's your background? How did you get to where you are now? Um, so I'm a Southern girl, been in Memphis since I was a baby, um, grew up really traditional, uh, Baptist upbringing, missionary Baptist at that. Uh, so like wood pews, you know, hymnals, church fans. And, um, I realized that I had a call to ministry and I ran because again, traditional missionary Baptist, there had never been a woman to preach the gospel at my home church. And so mm. at the time, my pastor was the president of a ministerial association that didn't even allow women to come to the meetings. Wow. So like if you wanted to talk about foster care, which is which really happened to me because I was a uh, supervisor for a foster care organization, in order to discuss it with the pastors, you had to wait outside if you were a woman. When they call you to give you your time slot, you come in to speak and then you have to leave while they discuss what you talked about. Like this wow. happened in twenty. 12. So no, 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 not 2012, 2009. Okay. So, um, I'm accepting my calling that same year. And so, um, but during this process, we were raising money for a new building and I was, I was on the team. So I would get up and preach like a mini sermon every Sunday because I was like, yes, you know, I'm going to test this out. <laughs> right. Right. And right. So when I finally told my pastor, he just laughed. He's like, I knew last year, you know, like I needed you to know because some of these Southern men are going to make your life very hard. And I mm. couldn't tell you what I saw. And so from there, um, started working at mega churches. So I worked at um, pretty much, I think, all three of the largest black churches here in Memphis as a uh, marketing director. And so um, recently um, I finished my doctorate and started kind of getting into the public health conversation. And it's really not a departure from what I do because ultimately what God has kind of allowed me to do is to be a part of the conversation that impact people in my community. So whether that's leading a rally for the Trayvon Martin, you know, killing, um, mm. or working with the Biden administration about registering black people to vote and having conversations with um, black pastors because I was his national co-lead for the Souls to the Polls calls. So every week during the campaign, I was having these calls with all the black pastors in the country and also imams from the Muslim community because they put me mm. over that too, which was interesting because I have no idea about Islam, but I was leading right. those calls. Right. Um, but so whenever that, I guess whenever there's like a conversation that needs to be had, sometimes I end up having those conversations. And so when the coronavirus hit, I was like, you know, we sent out a prayer that people use. But then when the vaccine started, I was a little apprehensive. I'm like, is this something I want to take? And, mm -hmm. and God literally opened the door. I tweeted Dr. Kismikia Corbett, who I saw on a meme, created the vaccine. And, you know, you never really can trust memes. So no, when I right, saw it, right. when I, saw it I was like, this is fake. You know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. she looked so young. She was black. And let's be honest, I just didn't expect a young person who looked like me to be at the forefront of this vaccine conversation. But it mm -hmm. was true. She was a young black girl from South Carolina um, and she helped to create the vaccine. And so I tweeted her just like, I wonder what it would cost to get her to talk to my church. And she immediately replied and was like, I'd never charge for that conversation. I'll DM you my email. Let's make it happen. And she ends up speaking to our church. But then from that tweet, so many people started to flood her. Like, can you talk to me? Can you talk to me? And I'm so glad I got in when I did because right. she replied and was like, hey, I'm only going to talk to Dr. Kia, my pastor, and T.D. Jakes. And you can just wow. watch those. 
And so I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Me and T. Jakes mentioned in the same breath. Right. But yeah, right. so we, we have this conversation with her. And from there, it was like that became my mission from, from January until now was to educate as many people about the coronavirus, the vaccine, make sure that people not necessarily, I mean, I want everybody to be vaccinated, but I understand that people, you know, feel like they need their choices. So my goal was to make sure everyone was at least as educated as possible and that they had the opportunity to be vaccinated because in Memphis, originally they were just in white neighborhoods. Mm. And so we presented a proposal to the city council. They voted to give us some, to give the program a million dollars so that we can put these pods in black neighborhoods. And from there, Thousands of black people were able to get vaccinated in their churches. Um, you know, people who didn't have cars could ride their church buses. Older people that couldn't wait in long lines could sit, you know, in their church pews. And so we were able to kind of turn the tide um, on the coronavirus here locally. Um, and so that's kind of how I ended up there. I have no previous background in public health, but it ended up being so much of what I did that I ended up presenting to the White House like a wow. few months ago. Um, me, Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith, who's the director of the COVID response for Biden. It was me, her, and two other people who were doing work on the ground in their cities. And we presented um, to the country, whoever had called, you know, called into this Zoom, like health professionals, public health people, about ways to galvanize their communities. And so I guess what I did was meaningful because I ended up there, but it just was kind of me volunteering because even though we got a million dollars to do the program, I didn't get a dime. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, you're saying you're not living in a million dollar mansion right now with a Tesla no, in the driveway. Not at all. You know, church planners, we don't really make a lot of money church planning. That's why I work for so many other churches. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So, you know, you, you hit on some uh, you hit on some very interesting things. Let's start with the vaccine issue. Um, it's interesting because. You were saying how, how at least in your in your circles, you found at least initially a lot of maybe resistance in the black community for the vaccine. Obviously, mm-hmm. we've seen a lot of that in white evangelical spaces. In fact, I think statistically, white evangelicals are are the highest to the not get vaccinated, but yep. but black Protestants are very close as well in, yep. in the numbers. So can you kind of maybe share from your vantage point, because you're really in it and you're really a, a part of that community way more than I am. What what are some of the big obstacles to convincing people to get vaccinated? Because obviously, you know, in, in many white spaces, it's really conspiracies. You know, yeah. it's it's a micro tri- uh, chip. It's the mark of the beast. It's going to give you a tail. It's going to change your DNA, et cetera. Which, by the way, if it's the mark of the beast, you've already missed. <laughs> you've already missed. <laughs> like, are you serious right now? <laughs> but, it's a thing. But no, I'm, I I think the, the funny thing is, and I, I'm so glad that we get to have this conversation because we don't have enough conversations, you know, across racial lines about our, how our faith has contributed to real life issues. But yeah, yeah, I think it's really important to know that black people in the South's faith is very much like white evangelicals because it's where we got we were introduced. I mean, like as slaves, we were, you know, there were Christians in Africa, of course, but American Christians. Christianity, even for black people, is very shaped by the conversations that were happening during slavery. And so mm-hmm. from there, even through segregation, a lot of what we preach, a lot of what people think is very similar to what's happening in white churches. And so, you know, that conversation about how my faith is greater than the vaccine, it's still happening in the black church. People being more susceptible to conspiracies still happening, except for the conspiracies in the black church 
kind of have a bit more weight because there were actual experiences that kind of matched those conspiracies. So you think right. about the Tuskegee experiment, right? Right. Where they did not, they they let these black men get to get get syphilis, and then they deliberately withheld treatment to see what syphilis would do to their bodies. And so that you know that was my my grandmother's generation, and so my grandmother is alive today. With, you know, the knowledge of what was happening to people in Tuskegee. This is before social media. So, you know, it had to be bad if people <laughs> right. all over the country knew and they couldn't post about it online. And right. so right. they, you're convincing my grandmother, right, to get the vaccine was very hard because she was like, I'm not I'm not going to do it. I don't I don't trust it. And she never explicitly said the Tuskegee experiment. But you have to be aware that those are things that could possibly run through her mind. Now, ultimately, she's vaccinated. I just she just got her booster. Everybody in my family's vaccinated except for one's family um, that unfortunately ended up getting, you know, really hit bad by COVID. Mm. Um but those conversations are happening. And so it was a really a hard conversation to have because you've got multiple generations of trauma passed down, medical trauma. Think about <laughs> black women being more likely to die in childbirth because doctors aren't listening. I had a black doctor who didn't listen to me. Right. So it's not even mm. that because, again, just like the black church mirrors the white church, black doctors mirror the same prejudices that white doctors may have because they're all trained by the same people. And so all of this trauma is passed down. And then you get this vaccine that people think is rushed, but it's not rushed. Right. What happened to the vaccine this time was you had the world. It had the world stage. So the reason why other vaccines take longer is because they don't have as much money. They don't have as much attention and they don't have as much people to staff the process. But with the COVID vaccine, the world stopped. So all the researchers were available. You had all these people giving away money because they didn't want to die, you know. And so it was like, oh, we can we can do this. But the trials were actually larger than other trials. But people didn't know that because mm. we were all just moving so fast. And so we had to have those conversations with people and say, hey, the Tuskegee experiment denied treatment. If you mm. don't get the vaccine, you're replicating the Tuskegee experiment. You're not you're not fighting against it. You're denying yourself treatment, much right. like they did to the men in Tuskegee. And so then people are like, oh, you know. And then as the data came out more, where it was like 98% of the people who were dying were vac- were unvaccinated. And people are like, oh. So then we saw this other uptick. But yeah, it was difficult because there are people who say, I'll trust God. I don't need a vaccine. But it's like, yeah. okay, well, do you take do you take Tylenol? Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. No. <laughs> exactly. Because we kind of over sensationalize our faith in these extreme moments and we forget the basics. Yeah. That, first off, that's really great. Um, it, it is interesting hearing some of the correlations, right? Because we were talking before we, we recorded, I grew up in very white fundamentalist reform spaces and um, I just didn't grow up in, 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 in the black church, frankly. Right. So I don't know what I don't know. And mm-hmm. I also really stay out of that lane on my Instagram because people who need to maybe critique the black community will, are, will, will do that who are from that community, right? Like I'm, yeah. I'm critiquing the white community. I'll take care of those guys, you know? <laughs> uh, but I don't feel right. Like I like, like talking about yeah. issues that I just don't know enough about and also didn't grow up being a part of. It's just not correct. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is interesting hearing you talk now and seeing some of the correlations. But one big difference being that the black community can point to actual things in American history and say, See, yes. <laughs> like not just like a yes. total conspiracy, right? Is that kind of one of the big differences? Yeah. And yeah. and I want to specify that it's really the Southern Black Church. I mean, we mm. see some similarities to the white church in other spaces, but the Southern Black Church is very much like the white evangelical church of the South. Um, but to your point about 
conspiracies. And that's really why it was hard to watch because I would see white evangelicals talk about being oppressed and not wanting to wear a mask. And I'm like, were you a slave? Like, were your grandparents a slave? Because be clear, my grandmother's still alive, but she was the grandchild of former slaves. Like her parents were first generation free black people. So literally my my great grandmother died when I was nine. And uh, her husband was actually a sharecropper before he died. So I lived in the same earth as someone who had just left slavery. And so to hear people who benefited from the oppression of people who look like me say that they're being oppressed right. by wearing a mask. Right, right. It's like, are you loving your neighbor? Let's talk about that for a minute, <laughs> because I got to be honest, this drives me crazy. I'm also noticing new language from... Um, from some people, including people like Charlie Kirk, of using the language of segregation, that those who are unvaccinated, it's a segregation thing. Oh. And I'm like, I'm like, that has, if, if, if that language offends me as a white cisgender male, it's got to really offend the black community who has, like, like you said, you live, you were on the same earth at, at yep. some point as someone yep. in your family who experienced slavery. How does that make you feel? And like, and like, what do we do to, to fight this? Because honestly, it's driving me crazy. I mean, honestly, I think more conversations like this, but then also sometimes like I hate to use the flip the table analogy because it was really about money. But maybe we had to go on right. some of these churches and flip the tables because <laughs> I'm, in I feel this, that. I'm in this weird space. Right. You know, volunteer for the Biden campaign, um, work uh, very closely with the Southern Baptist black church. But I'm very much protest. So like fun fact, remember a couple of years ago. When there were all these bridge takeovers that were on CNN, yeah, I was seven months, seven weeks pregnant, unaware, taking over the bridge in Memphis, and be- <laughs> and became one of the frontline people against my will. Uh, my husband wanted to go. I was like, they're gonna kill us. Like we're not getting on this bridge, mm. not knowing I'm pregnant. I'm crying on the bridge. Like, can we please go home? But my pastor at the time knew the police chief. He was like, Kia. You need to get to the person that started this and y'all will have a meeting. And so I ended up being on the news for weeks and all this stuff. So I'm literally like the pro I will protest if I need to. But I'm in these spaces where I kind of have to taper that back in order to get some kind of progress. And mm, so seeing well people who don't have to juggle that line to accomplish anything, say they're being oppressed or segregated. It drives me crazy. It makes me want to flip some tables. I'm like, OK, Kia. Right. You, you kind of can't do that because then you're not going to be able to move here. And so what I've learned is you kind of have to let the people who are only going to flip tables, flip the tables. And then you kind of have the conversations behind closed doors. <laughs> well, I, and I, I, I appreciate that perspective. It, it, th- when I see and hear language, like you said, oppression, wearing a mask is tyranny, um, whatever, you know, you know, being vaccinated, unvaccinated is segregation. It reminds me, and I'm still learning here, so you can correct me if I make some errors, but and from what I'm learning, it just sounds like it's whiteness all over again, which is to control the conversation and make that the default reality that people must center around. And I was going to tie that back into, is that kind of like, you, you made the comment earlier that the Southern Black church is very much like like, like the white church. And you made the comment earlier that 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 your doctor helped deliver your child was black, but didn't listen to you. Is when people talk about the term whiteness, is that like one example of how whiteness can transcend sometimes even skin color? It's a mentality more than just the color of your skin. Or am I missing something there? It's not necessarily that whiteness can transcend skin color, but okay. 
there is this what we have what we have kind of created as a culture is that whiteness is the standard. And so right. even in the medical community, you remember the pictures of like chicken pox? There was a white hand. So you as a black kid don't might not realize if you have the chicken pox or you might not realize if you have the ringworm because the, the picture in your book or even let's take it to sexually transmitted diseases. The picture of herpes in your health book was a white person. So as a black person, you're like, is it a hair bump or do I have herpes? And so all mm. of science and religion is centered around whiteness being the ideal. And so there were these mm. studies where doctors were told that black people can experience more pain than other people. And so it's passed down. And so there are some doctors, even when they try to break through, it's their training. And so, um, mm, you know, my, okay. my doctor was just and it was funny because it was a white nurse that advocated for me. Uh, my water wow. broke really quickly. And uh, he was like, give her an Ambien, let her go to sleep. And I love my doctor to this day. And I don't even know if it was racism or, or even his his understanding of whiteness. But what I'm saying uh, is. I had to advocate with my black doctor the same way that some black women have to advocate with white doctors. So if you can imagine how much more intense it would have been if he sure. wasn't a black doctor. And sure. so he basically told the nurse, give me an Ambien. My baby wasn't coming for five hours that I didn't need my epidural. And she was like, girl, your baby is coming. We're going to give you this epidural. <laughs> and so like literally 20 minutes later, she's like, your baby has all this hair. And I'm like, how do you know? She's like, baby, it's time to push. If I had listened to him, I would have been delivering my baby natural. That was not my plan. <laughs> <laughs> we got science for a reason. You know? yes, so because she moved as quickly as she did, I had about two minutes left when it was time to push before the epidural set. So I always joked that my child was half natural, half epidural because two pushes, the, the epidural wasn't all the way there yet. The last two, it had kicked in and I could tell the difference. But my point is, you know, I didn't, I had to advocate for myself with him and it could have just been him being tired. But you think about sure, stories sure. like Serena Williams, who literally almost died because her doctor was like, oh, whatever. And she had a blood clot coursing through her body that mm. could have killed her. Or even um, what was that judge's name that was really popular in the 90s? Um, I can't remember her name. Cute little lady. But her daughter died. Um, in childbirth, and now her and her son-in-law are trying to lead this, you know, legislation all the way, you know, to Congress and to the Senate about advocating for Black women because, you know, we're dying, and so you have all this mistrust, right? But it's but it stems from the trauma, and the trauma stems from this this whiteness, as you put it. You know mm, that mm. Black people feel less pain, that we over exaggerate, or that if you're overweight, you know, that's right. the for you being sick, um, right? Yeah. And um and so when you pair that with religion, then you get, you know, oh, black people are uneducated. So their 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 preaching isn't good enough or, you know, things like that. And so there's racism is infiltr is, is infiltrating every part of our life. And black people are constantly navigating this. And I think the issue is white people, even white people who are believers, don't realize all that we're navigating just to exist. I think you're really right on that last point. Um, and, you know, I was sharing with you before we started recording that even me, I'm, I'm 33, you know, it was one, it was the the murder of Ahmaud Arbery that, that, that where I began to first really start to take this idea of like, well, maybe racism is still very much a thing really seriously. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't intentional, right? I didn't think I was a racist person, but I had all these like unconscious biases in my head that like, I just didn't, I didn't question. Right. And like you said, I just defaulted to the, the way that America works, the way America works, and people have to assimilate into it, right? Which now looking back as I read more, I'm like, okay, assimilationist theory. That's what I was yeah. like, you know, per, per, uh, perpetuating. So 
it, it, I think you're right where, like, uh, for example, let's use someone like my mom, right? My mom's a nice white evangelical lady who loves the Lord like crazy, who's a giver. She's helped pay people's mortgages. Like, they're great. She's a great person, right? Hey, mom. She, yeah. Hi, mom. <laughs> I never know if she listens. She's a great, like, a great human. You talk about race and she gets all tense. Oh, I'm not a bad person. I'm not a racist. It's like, okay. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you should realize maybe that like there's other ways to view the world. So I agree with you. That seems to be a very big, um, you know, uh, hitting a brick wall kind of idea where where people who maybe are even well-intentioned, like my mom, who doesn't listen to, she listens to no Fox News, listens to no talk radio. She has no clue. She just doesn't get what you're trying to say. How do we bridge that gap? It's hard. And so now you've got, you know, this whole critical race theory conversation, oh, which is goodness. hilarious to me because it's not even taught in schools. So I know it's not. Dang it. Put some tables here. <laughs> like literally like um, it's it's not taught in schools, which is hilarious. They're, but, but really what they're using it is as this kind of gate to block off conversations about other things, because I saw this book list that they're now banning. They're banning uh. the book eye, which is like Toni Morrison's book. They're banning. You know what I mean? And so and then they're using Dr. King quotes. I, I know. <laughs> like crazy. what? You killed him. <laughs> I know. In your brain. <laughs> it does. So, yeah, yeah. So it's it's really hard, and it's kind of scary because it's happening so quickly. Like here yeah. in Tennessee, it's just like it's, uh, sometimes it takes my breath away how quickly the idiocy that's controlling these conversations is moving and gaining power. So, by the way, if you're watching, vote in your local elections. Um, but. But I say all that to say, you know, it's hard, especially the generation that's not really engaged online. It's like six in one hand, half dozen in the other. If they're not engaged online, they're kind of insulated from the foolishness, but they also don't get to see, you know, the actual factual information. But then if they are online and they're older, they're more likely to lean into these conspiracy theories. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The same generation that, uh, that was getting hacked because they were sending their social security numbers to email addresses. So oh, I know. <laughs> it's kind of like, the, the conversation about digitized, digitized communication takes on this whole other, you know, other conversation. Because even if we talk about Facebook, Zuckerberg had a hand in January 6th, if we're being honest. Totally, right? totally. Uh, and so we, it is like, we can go so many ways with this conversation because, you know, your sweet mom is not watching the news, but she may be talking to some people who are watching the news or people that she loves and values. And then this has been her whole life. You just, right. you pop her bubble and let her know that she's had some privilege. And then she's like, am I this bad person? My puppy is crying. It's oh, it's daughter. fine. It's totally fine. It's, it's totally Harper, fine. come let poor, Louis in. Poor puppy. I know he's just crying at the door. Um, <laughs> but you know, you gotta, you know, you're, you're bursting her bubble. And so a lot of people who are some of my friends who are, you know, black that are like, oh, forget them, whatever. You know, they need to know better. But for some reason in my mind, I kind of have a heart for like your mom because it's like, even though she's benefited from things that right. have probably made my life terrible, I also have enough emotional intelligence to recognize the fact that she may not have really fully processed it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, right. if textbooks, again, somebody posted this the other day. It said the same way that white, black kids are taught that their race makes them inferior indirectly, white kids are taught that their race is preferential without realizing it, right? Think about right. marketing materials, Right. Yeah. You've never seen a commercial where you didn't see yourself. 
my right. entire life until recently, right. I was used to seeing, not seeing myself. So that's why Essence Magazine and Ebony Magazine and Jet Magazines were staples in the Black community because it put us, right, yeah. on the yeah. cover. So when my story was told in Essence Magazine, my granny cried because it's like, oh my gosh, you know, kids in Essence Magazine. But it probably wouldn't have been a big deal if, you know, you had been in, I don't know, a right. newspaper or something because- sure. Sure. Your mom's used to seeing whiteness. And so right. even those things we don't really realize, you know, are things that your mom never really processed. So- That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. So one thing I wanted to bring up about this is, yeah, let's talk about about critical race theory for a second, okay? I have found myself um, reading as much as I can about it, trying to engage. Like, there's a uh, Dr. Nathan Cartagena, who I love, some of my uh-huh. favorites, um, just a great scholar on this. And it really is, it is shocking, like you said, uh, Kia, how quick this term has moved and how it has become something that has nothing to do with actual critical race theory. Dr. Cartagena says we're talking about cultural CRT, not even CRT at this point, right? Yeah. It's a term that it's been totally hijacked. And I, I think I say this a lot in my podcast, my listeners are probably sick of it by now, but I always tell my guests whenever we talk about this, I think a lot of us have underestimated the power of conservative talk radio and conservative media, because they are directly, I mean, directly responsible for blowing this thing up. And the white evangelical church, the 80% of those Trump lovers, right? Have yep. ta- and, and they've taken that and then they've helped to just, it, it's a, it's an ugly feedback loop, right? And yep. so conservative talk radio knows exactly who they're talking to. They absorb it. I tell pastors all the time, you're not discipling your congregation. Tucker Carlson is like statistically. Oh my gosh! Yes, he is. He is. Well, and is that's Lars what we have. Larson is Lars Larson still on the radio? Uh, uh, I don't know. Lars I, Larson. Um, so I, um, my 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 master's degree is from the University of Chicago, and I had to take <laughs> a linguistic anthropology class. And mm. the lady made us pick conservative radio hosts to transcribe and like study their rhetorical like. Yes. Um, devices that they use and i had to study lars larson and i'm like lars larson and it was crazy because now he's still around um i never listened to him before but literally like it was the repetition it was he was like amplifying non-factual stuff he would cut people off who interjected and literally when she when she coded the data from all of us all of us saw the same rhetorical device. It's almost like they go to this school to exactly. learn how to spread misinformation and how to do it in such a rhythmic way because yep. if they keep repeating it over and over in your mind, it's like, okay, this must be true. And so, you know, you pair that with the algorithms of social media now because in 2008, Facebook was just getting started, right? Uh, we Instagram didn't exist, you know, Twitter didn't exist and whatever they have now, Parler. But now with uh, parlor. Facebook, right? <laughs> but now with Facebook, like you should look up um Shoshana Zuboff. She has a book called um Surveillance. It's about surveillance capitalism, where she talks about how Facebook makes money from watching us. Um, and how they like all the stuff the whistleblower said, she was this lady was theorizing this two years ago. Wow. And so I used that for my my doctoral work, but essentially she talks about how the algorithm works. And so Let's just say your mom did have Facebook. We know she doesn't. Let's just say she did. 
she would never see the stuff that I see on my timeline. Because what happens is, you know what I mean? She's liking Lars Larson and then from Lars Larson, it's going to take her to Tucker Carlson. From Tucker Carlson, it's going to take him to whatever that black lady is. What's her name? Candace Owens. Candace Owens. (laughs) And, you know, she's going to be watching all of that. And then I'm going to like, I don't know, a CNN post. And then it's going to take me to something about Ahmaud Aubrey. And so we'll be in these two different worlds. And then that's how January 6th happens. And and and, and liberal people didn't see it coming mm. because we didn't see any of those conversations that were happening. Um, and so it is fueled by conversations that are happening online, this conservative radio, but also social media. And it's scary to watch. Like, I know it's how I make my living because... I do I do social media for churches, but I really wish we could regulate what, what they're doing because this whole metaverse thing is also about to be very scary. I really do go back and forth on this idea of regulation. And, you know, on one hand, I'm very much like, hey, you know, people have a right to say what they want. On the other hand, I'm like, what happens, though, when it fuels a literal freaking insurrection and people die? Like, then what do we do? Yes. Right? I mean, so it, it, it's really messy. Like, listen, I've had posts from Instagram on my account flagged and taken down. I'm like, I didn't even say anything because their algorithm is just somebody so. Somebody didn't like what you said. It could have been that. And also, I know that there are certain words that are triggered and, you know, all this stuff. So it, it, it's definitely frustrating when my stuff gets taken down. I mean, I, I hate it. I appeal. It gets back up. But it's still annoying. So I, I I also struggle with a lot of this, you know, like, 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 like how do we navigate it? How do you think as, as, well, let's pause there for a second. I want to go back to a different conversation briefly. And I'm all, I'm all over the place here, but while I have you specifically, cool. I want more of your, your views and your experience in the Southern black church. Cause you mentioned just how it's very similar in some ways to maybe white evangelicalism. In what ways is it also different? Okay. So there's this, this contention between, you know, upholding the tradition, a lot of, a lot of misogyny, you know, mm-hmm. um, but then there's also this fight for justice, but it is often the justice of men, um, you know, and women are kind of, uh, uh kind of grouped in, kind of like, you know, the story of the two fish and five loaves of bread, mm-hmm. people's light bulbs went off and I was like, it was men and their families. They're like, oh, because even that text is sent around, it says 5,000 men. You know what I mean? In other translations let you know that there were other people. So then that mm-hmm. miracle becomes even more impressive. Right. But a lot of what we read and teach is centered around men. And so the Black church in the South is, you know, it was the center of the civil rights movement, right? But then it was also centered around men and also lighter-skinned women. So if I had been around in the 60s, I probably would have been in the front of whatever. And someone who's a few shades darker than me, you might not have seen. So a lot of people don't Mm. know this. But the story of Rosa Parks, love the story to death. There's a dark-skinned Black lady that did it before. Mm. And... Yeah, I've heard of this. You never hear her story, right? And Mm. so the Black church has its flaws too. Um, Now, is it a great institution? Do I believe in it? Of course. But Mm -hmm. our proximity to whiteness, it's like, it's it's only been 400 and what, almost 403 years, almost since the first slave ship landed. But then you got to go to 1865. So we haven't even been, you know, 300 years outside of Mm. the end of slavery. We've only been 50 years outside of segregation. There's not a long enough time to figure out who we are and to kind of cleanse ourselves from the things that we adapted because a lot of that was survival. Like, you know, I straighten my hair now because it's a preference for me. But, you know, and my grandmother's hair is because she's 
biracial was a little bit different, but let's just say she had kinkier hair. She had to straighten her hair to survive if her mm. hair was kinky, right? So there were a lot of things that we did that we adapted was just for us to survive, right? Mm. And so reclaiming what blackness means, even in the even inside of the church, is a journey. Yeah. And we're not fully there yet. There are some churches that do it well, but there's some churches that are grappling with it because it was, you know what I mean? It was how we survived. The music, like you think about Thomas Dorsey, who was this revolutionary who was mixing blues with gospel. But at the time, they were calling him like, you know, a heathen. But he was bringing his black culture back to the faith that was completely, you know, white hymnals. And so yeah. a lot of who we are is something that it's becoming because we, although Christianity was in Africa before slavery, American mainline Christianity, right. particularly right. in the black church, is shaped right. by white conversation. Either yeah, like Puritan kind of view. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, literally like, you know, conversations about sex, um, conversations about, you know, womanhood. I mean, there's a reason why in 2009, I was the first woman to ever be able to preach at my home church in 2018, 2019, I became the first woman on staff at another church as a consultant, right? 2019. Mm, this month, right. I become the first woman in the Tennessee Black Baptist cabinet, right? In history. This wow. is 2021. There's never been a Black woman on the cabinet, right? Mm -hmm. I asked for permission to share this because he hasn't announced it, but by the time you air it, it will be public. But oh, we're, we're, woman, we're live right now. No, I'm just kidding. Because <laughs> <laughs> I just walked out. Yeah, the first woman, right? And so there's wow. all this misogyny that's coming out. But that even, even that is to me a parallel of whiteness because there's a whole lot of misogyny in the white community. Oh, I know. You know I, know. What I mean, like uh, there was an article I read the other day said that, you know, white women really don't have power. Their power is this proximity to white men who are powerful. Yeah. And I never thought about it like that. But that's where you get, you know, the the victimized white women in movies. You know what I mean? Because making white women appear as victims gives white men more power. Mm. And I never was, well, you know, cishet or white men. But I never really thought about it that way because I was always fighting for my own liberation. It never made me realize that even though sometimes white women can still use that privilege by proximity, that ultimately they are not necessarily as powerful as we have kind of thought that they were. That's fair. And you mentioned though that you're also working like in, SB in SBC circles, which obviously does not believe in ordaining women. And the yeah. ones that have been ordained have become big, big, like, you know, this is the end of that. I mean, I remember what, uh, what, what, what's the big church, which is Saddleback Saddleback, I think ordained a woman, a couple, a woman, a couple months ago. Well, they and, were about to get rid of Rick Warren. They were like, I mean, he, did he leave quietly, but they wanted to like have his head on a stick. Well, and then Al Moore posted quotes from like the founder of the SBC, who was a former slaveholder. And you're like, Al, like out of all the ways you want to argue this, that's who you want to quote. Yep. And he doubled down and posted yep. another quote from him. So, I mean, you're you're kind of in the belly of the beast in on both fronts of both. You know, uh, the SBC does not have a very good track record yeah. and, or a good or, you know, um, what, what's the word? Um, origin story of yeah. why it formed when it came to I mean, black people. Exactly. So, <laughs> so it's really funny because I'm on staff there. I have my own church, but I'm on staff there. And the church itself is kind of insulated from all the conversations. But because it's kind of like the pastor is one of the greatest people I've ever known. Love him, love him, love him to death. 
but right. he's not really online. So he like he didn't see any of that stuff happening. Um, and so that again goes back to the social media stuff because it's like he didn't even know those conversations were happening. Um, but yeah, it's it is um it's interesting that God would have me be in those spaces because sometimes I get tired of being the first because it's like you you take so many hits. So even like accepting the position for the convention, I was like, you really want to do this? You know, are there going to be some men in the room who are like, why are you here? You know, but it's kind of like been my life, like every at every turn. But yeah, it's being in the South in the Bible Belt, you know, planning a church. Okay, so I was the first millennial, and millennials are not young anymore. I'm 36. Yeah, I was the first, I feel that. Millennial, first millennial woman to plant a church in this region. That means like Arkansas, Mississippi, and Tennessee, probably St. Louis, because of misogyny. You know there are women who are probably called to plant churches who didn't, either because they didn't have resources or because they didn't see someone who looks like them. And so, yeah, I mean, this whole, but, but this is Baptist country, though. Like, yeah. People think all churches are black. You're a Baptist church until proven not Baptist. People don't even ask denominations. They just assume wow. you're a Baptist church. Wow. So, I mean, what makes you stay in it? <laughs> I got to ask that because, you so, know, I, I, can, I, can I explain real quick? Sorry to cut you off there. Mm-hmm. Just to give you some, you know, some like maybe the context behind that statement. I work in, in, in the deconstruction space, right? We have this community of people. Uh, a lot of us have were either asked to leave or left the evangelical church. A lot of people who, who are listening to this conversation are tired. They don't want to be in these spaces anymore. They they are women. They are women of color. They are queer folks who have experienced all of this stuff and more. I, I, I personally have, yes, I've been traumatized, but compared to some, I've had a, an easy go. <laughs> so, you know, what makes you stay in it? And, and what makes you wake so, up and say, yep. So so here, so my church was non-denominational. Now, if when I assume this position, you know, will be Baptist, but kind of like this new, I guess, generation. But for me, um, this is probably going to sound crazy. I hope it doesn't sound arrogant, but I want to be part of the change. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like since God keeps putting me in these places, he must kind of want me to do those things. Because the whole Tennessee Baptist thing wasn't even on my radar. It was like, wait, what? You want me to do what? Like me? I wear ripped jeans. I don't wear collars. You want, huh? Mm. You know? And so when we started having the conversation, he was explaining to me like, no, we need someone to teach us about like digital communication. We need people to talk about revitalization. And, you know, these are your giftings. And then it's like, okay, this, this kind of makes sense. And so I, I have to, I have to always catch myself because we talk about privilege. I've had privilege because although I've been the first, I've always been protected. So, you know, I said that my pastor was over organization and didn't allow women, but he did not Mm. allow them to treat me wrong inside of his church. Right. Mm. Um, The church where I am now, they, although I'm the first woman, they don't function like traditional SBC churches where, you know, it's fire and brimstone. If you're a woman, you know what I mean? I'm very much, you know, embrace the pastor, you know, and I have a great relationship. And so my goal in these spaces, and not only to do my job well and to learn what I need to learn, but also to carve out a space for another woman to come behind me. Like, I'm not always going to be working at this SBC church. Yes, Harper. <laughs> okay, I'm filming. Okay, I'm filming, Sweet Pea. <laughs> like, I'm live. <laughs> We ate a full 
He ate a taco? Yes. How did he eat a taco? I was putting it in a trap, and I saw the weird thing that Okay, Harper, just go in the back, and don't feed him any more tacos. Thank you. Uh, um, start over. No, <laughs> yeah, you're fine. Sometimes you need something that kind of breaks that that fourth wall, right? Like, yeah, we're all humans. We got kids. We got families. Harper, please take him out of there. But how is he getting to the trash when the trash is three times his height? Four year olds. So no uh, Harper, don't interrupt me again, please. Um, so it's almost your bedtime. So um, so it's like I want to create spaces yeah. for women. Yeah. Um, and it's almost like either we just let it completely die, which is an option, you mm. know, or yeah. we work to redeem spaces that have been broken by systemic racism and misogyny. Yeah. And that's kind of what my doctoral work was for in terms of digital communication. Um, it was about redemptive technology. So most people don't know that that's a whole field where people study ways to redeem the technology. So how do you use Zuckerberg's algorithm mm. to figure out a way to raise money to plant a church in Ghana, which is what we did, right? Right. How do you figure out how to, you know, use certain hashtags so that your content is appraised higher than some insurrectionist content, right? Because mm. the formulas are out there, the tactics are out there, but are we, you know, so how do you train the church to do those things? And so for me, we recognize that a lot of the people who hold those, to me, unchristlike yeah. beliefs about women and about Black people or people of color or, you know, people who have different beliefs or, you know, different purposes, whatever you want to say, those people are, this is going to sound terrible, they're going to die, mm. right? And so when those people die in the next 10 to 20 years, is there going to be something, you know, is is the organization going to live or right. are we going to let go and stink? Or are we going to position ourselves in places where we can move the conversation forward and redeem those spaces? Because for me, as a Christian, yeah, we have to think that, for for you know, for lack of a better term, that everything is essentially redeemable, right? Right, right. But it's right. kind of hard to have these conversations. You think about like yeah. racism, like I don't, okay, Trump. God don't call me to walk there, right? Because, you know, right. when John Gray sat at the table with him, you know, a popular black pastor, everybody was eating him alive. And I was heartbroken too. Like, why are you sitting at the table? And I'm like, oh my God. But at the same time, it's like, somebody got to talk to him. Right. Probably right. doesn't need to be Paula White. But somebody, <laughs> <Amen>. <laughs> somebody needs to talk to him. And so, yes. it, and, and, I, and I'm not comparing the Southern Black Church to Donald Trump by any means. But what I'm saying is there are some people in Southern Black churches who did vote for Trump, hmm. who would still vote for Trump today, despite the racism, because they value preventing abortions and preventing hmm. gay marriage above protecting Black lives. Hmm. And that also lets you know that whiteness and proximity to whiteness is often prized. Hmm. Because if, you know, for me, the most unchristlike thing we can do, and, and, and I, I could get in trouble for saying this, but I've said it before. Um, to me, the most unchristlike thing that we can do is to deny somebody the ability to do something that we disagree with. Mm. Because Christ gave us choices. Mm. We don't see him in the Bible stopping, you know what I mean? Yeah. 
anyone from doing anything, right? Mm. And so to say you can't marry this person because I believe scripture says this mm. to me is unchristlike. Mm. You don't agree with it? Let them do whatever they're going to do, right? Because mm. Christ gives people choices to say you can't have an abortion because I say the scripture says this to me again, it's still unchristlike because Christ gives choices. Now, whether or not you believe that their choice is biblical is another conversation, but your ability to stop people from having a choice to me is not like Christ. And mm-hmm. that is really controversial for people to hear. It hurts their feelings, but, but, but you can't, you can't argue with, with Bible with me on that. There mm-hmm. is not an, there is no, instances of in scripture where Christ is actively stopping people from doing something right. That he disagreed with. Mm. Mm. And so, you know, even the woman, you know, who was caught in sin, he didn't say don't stone her. He said, right. He was without sin cast the first stone. Yeah. And no, so, that's really oh, good. Wait, I just realized that my, <laughs> 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 you don't have clothes on. So please. Oh this, no. Yeah. This is going to be your funniest <laughs> podcast ever. Harper. That's bye. okay. Are you saying, oh, oh are you spraying perfume in my hair? Hey, you're not dressed. They don't need to see you not dressed on this podcast. <laughs> no, do your thing. <laughs> you just spray perfume in my hair. No, that's adorable. Hi, hi, Harper. We're, we're really almost done. I was just going to wrap up and say that, um, that. I did. What are you talking about? <laughs> you don't always have to take a bath. You can take a shower. There you now, go. get out of here. Little ladies don't even take a shower. They do. She's on this thing now where you have to take a bath. You can't take a shower. Hey, man. So you can take a bath. But my 18 month old eats tables and, you know, eats things off the floor. So kids just do things. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to sit in the bath. Like, no, 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 me either. I'm so six I, foot four. I don't fit in baths. Okay. Like it doesn't happen to me, she, but she wants to sit and play with her toys. So to her, if I didn't sit and play, no, ma'am, I'm going to take my shower. <laughs> Well, listen, I, I let me let me close this out here anyway, because we are at that point. But and, and, and I was thinking about kind of landing the plane. But I want to say I really admire your perspective. In a lot of ways, I see a lot of what I've been trying to do in some way, kind of in the same vein of like, listen, we can either tear the institution down or try and redeem it. And honestly, some days I'm just like, yo, give me that Molotov cocktail. I'll be the first one to throw it in. Like, I'm ready, you know. But there is something to like, the gathering, there's something to the institution. And I, I don't know what that is, but like, I'm kind of stubborn, right? Like, I know maybe uh-huh. we can make it work. Now, the good news is that, is that, is that the, the divine works through all kinds of things. He's worked before the SBC. He'll work after the SBC. Uh, the divine has worked before Hillsong. They'll work after Hillsong. So that helps me feel better that, you know, the, the weight of, of the gospel going forth isn't on uh-huh one institution but i certainly admire and respect that the perspective of but maybe we can make it better you know like these guys have a lot of power maybe we can get them to, to realize like why don't we share and why don't we do things together yeah. for the sake of the kingdom you know i think that that's, or, that's really beautiful yeah or at least go in and create a space for the woman who doesn't doesn't have options so you know what i mean i have options yeah. i planted my church independently yeah if, if, you know, if the Baptist convention tells me, which is not Southern Baptist, but if the missionary Baptist convention tells me, hey, we don't like what you got going on. I can go right back to where I am. You know, we don't foresee that happening because, you know, right, right. Come on. but let's just right. say that. 
But there are some women who might not have the resources, might not have the confidence, might not have the calling to leave these spaces. Or maybe yeah. they're married to men, you know what I mean, who don't want to leave these spaces. And so it's like if God opens the door for me, it's like, OK, well, part of what I'll do is create this space for someone who may not, you know, because the person who's the president, I, when he leaves, the culture may change again. Right. But did I create a space for a woman who might find herself in that culture to, to be able to kind of spread her wings? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, for me, that's kind of how I think about it. Uh, but also to have those conversations, because. The church where I contract, one of the churches where I contract that is SBC, this black mega church, the pastor, our relationship is teaching him things and it's teaching me things too. And so oftentimes, like you were saying about your mom, we don't have the conversation to help people kind of see, hey, life can be different. Right. Uh, we other right. people. You know what I mean? And it's easy to other people. If they're saying things that are hurtful and harmful, and they believe things that are hurtful and harmful. I understand why you want to other them or not talk to them. Right. But but sometimes there are people who can have those conversations, kind of be bridge builders, so to speak. And so then you can, through life experiences, disciple people or have conversations with people to help them kind of turn the corner. Yeah. And so yeah. my childhood pastor, there had never been a woman preacher. But he loved me to this day. Like I, I called to get advice from him yesterday to see if he wanted me to, if he thought making this move in the cabinet would be appropriate, right? Mm. And he loved me. And because he loved me, you can't look someone in the eye that you love and say, you you speak very well, you know, scripture very well. You know what I mean? You're able to evangelize people, but you can't yeah. preach. You know what I mean? It's right. kind of like, right. and so... Having those conversations and living your life can sometimes shift people. Does yeah. it work all the time? Absolutely not. Right. Um, right. But in those spaces, I try to use those opportunities to to kind of be that example. It's not easy. Sometimes I want to cuss. <laughs> we we curse on this podcast, so you're allowed. <laughs> Should have known. Just so you know. Yeah, of course. Well, listen, you know, Dr. Kia, I appreciate you making time and coming on. Where can, pe where can people find you? Where can they follow your work? You know, plug away. I am Dr. Kia Moore on everything. So Dr. Kia Moore on Facebook, Dr. Kia Moore on Instagram, Dr. Kia Moore on Twitter. Um, my church is the Church at the Well. So we're on Facebook um, as the Well. If you search our hashtag, we Make Wells, that's W-E-M-A-K-E-W-E-L-L-S. You'll see what we do in the community. We are a discipleship-driven and mission-focused ministry. And so we really are working to change the way that people see, change the way that, change the way that people see church. Um, and so we do a lot in the community. And so when we say that we make wells, we are saying that we're helping people pour out, right, their purpose and God's spirit into the community. And so when you click the hashtag, you'll see us giving away gas, giving away cars, buying heaters for people who don't have heaters and all of those things. And so wow. um, that is really my passion, which and we didn't talk about women church funders that much. But, yeah, that's really um, that's really my heart's passion is reshaping how people see church, because I can have conversations and create spaces in male dominated white spaces to help women. But I've also got to do the work in helping to build people and to build a community of disciples who could also be empowered to take over those spaces as well. And so I've, you know, I'm kind of trying to do both. So that's why so much in my bio, because 
<laughs> well, all this means is that I'll have to have you back on so we can dig into women who plant churches. That would yes. be amazing. So I, it was really great having you on. I appreciate you making the time. We'll definitely do it again. Yes. And thank you for letting Harper and Louie make <laughs> No <handy>. problem. Anytime. <laughs> we'll do it again. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.